Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, a combat pilot reflects on war, peace, and the man inside the machine. Lieutenant Colonel Jason Armagost fired some of the opening salvos of the Iraq War as he piloted his B-2 bomber over Baghdad. He'll talk about the choices he's made, the choices made for him, and how he makes sense of it all with the help of some great books. That's all ahead. Stay tuned. All right, on with today's show. I imagine that most or all of you out there have seen images of B-2 stealth bombers. The planes have been around for over 20 years now, and they still look completely futuristic, like something out of a Star Wars movie. They're dark gray, flat, and nearly featureless, not much more than a flying wing. And the impression is one of pure, lethal technology. So it's easy to overlook the fact that inside a B-2, there are not only bombs, but people. Two pilots, to be exact. Well, today I'm going to talk to one such pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Armagost of the U.S. Air Force. He started out flying F-16 fighters, and then in the year 2000, he began piloting B-2s. And it was from a B-2 on March 21, 2003, that he fired some of the opening shots of the Iraq War. He made one pass over Baghdad, dropping bombs on Saddam Hussein's presidential palace and other Iraqi command centers. Later, he became a commander of an entire B-2 squadron. In fact, it was the same unit that recently sent bombers to enforce the no-fly zone over Libya. Jason wasn't part of that operation. He was on a National Defense Fellowship at the time, studying strategy and deterrence at Stanford University. And that's where I met up with him. I wanted to talk to Jason Armagost about what it means to be a combat pilot carrying out the directives of war. And I especially wanted to know what it's like to be a human being inside all that deadly machinery. I thought Jason would be a good guy to ask because, in addition to being a pilot, he's also a writer. Three years after his bombing run over Iraq, he wrote a long, searching essay about the experience. It's called Things to Pack When You're Bound for Baghdad. And one of the things Jason packed for his flight was an armload of great literature, fiction, essays, poetry, which he says has helped him sort out his place in the military, in wartime and peacetime. So let's listen to the interview, and uh, by way of ground rules, I started by asking Jason what kinds of questions he's not allowed to answer as a serving Air Force officer. Well, I'm uh, not really able in a professional capacity to talk about policy decisions or politics, things like that, that lead into uh, kind of murky areas as a, as a serving officer. You know, I've sworn an oath to a constitution to serve the people, and so uh, I, I have to abide by the decisions of those people. So as long as everything is not illegal, unethical, or immoral. So so we'll try not to get you court-marked. Okay, <laughs> all right. But you were the lead bomber in this first sortie, if that's the right term, over Baghdad. You and one other guy in this B-2 bomber flew for about two days, 39 hours? Yeah, about just under 39 hours. Uh, from uh, Whiteman? Whiteman, Missouri. Yeah. Whiteman Air Force Base, a round trip of 39 hours, halfway across the world, mm -hmm. to fly over Baghdad, drop some bombs and return. And you never touched down during that time? No, no. Refueled in, in midair? Refueled midair uh, numerous times uh, and saw three sunrises. Mm-hmm. But only, what, 208 seconds were spent yeah. over Baghdad? And that was, I just kind of stuck my thumb in the breeze and, and estimated the rough time based on how big the metropolitan area of Baghdad was. Um, and during that time you dropped how many bombs or how, how much tonnage? Uh, well, we had numerous targets through Baghdad, not just the one. And so, I, to be honest, off the top of my head, I don't remember... Um, how many different targets and what the total tonnage was. But, but you were going after military uh, command and control type targets yes. to try to pave the way for the next wave of air assaults mm -hmm. and ultimately the invasion, the ground invasion. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment you dropped those bombs, mm -hmm. I mean you and your uh, the other crewman in this lead B-2 bomber, do you actually push a button? I mean, is that what happens? How does the sequence... Well, it, it's a it's a sequence of computers uh, running kind of in parallel between the airplane, the weapons, and the weapons control, and and so really it's not 
as much a button push as consent is given. Uh, you can you can immediately deny consent, but the fact that it's it's kind of numerous systems working together, uh, the the computers determine the precise moment to launch, and you can stop it at any given time. But really, once you have the switch up, you're saying mm. we're we're meeting the rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to the proper place, uh, and er- all the systems are are healthy so that they ensure weapon success. So so you're there to add a little bit of human judgment in this otherwise, you know, almost automated chain of events. Is that is that right? Is that a fair that's, way of putting it? That's a fair way of putting it. And when everything goes perfectly, uh there's very little that you would have to do, but that's that's more rare than than you'd wish, obviously with uh the complexities of war and yeah. the com- complexities of, of equipment. So I've been thinking a lot about you know, what a, a pilot like you does in that circumstance and how you're just enveloped in technology and you're mm-hmm. part of a, a large system of decisions that are made outside of your control that are passed down and sometimes mechanized to the point where mm-hmm. one wonders whether a human being even needs to be involved, you know? Could it be a robot doing it? Uh, you know, there there's obvious uh, things happening, drones, uh Guys disarming bombs, they're getting robots and things. And I think uh, there's definitely uh, a place for those. But if if you notice also, whether whether it comes to drones or EOD robots or however we implement technology, uh, there's a man in the loop uh, is kind of the cliche phrase that's used uh, to monitor those systems and make sure they're doing what we want them to do, but also to throw that human judgment into the mix and mm-hmm. say, Wait a second. You know, uh, somebody look off screen here. Move the move the uh, targeting ball and see uh, what what's this picture really? What's what's going on here that we may or may not know? Hmm. There are limitations to that that we have to be aware of. But uh, I don't see a, a person being in the loop going away anytime soon. The automation of war uh, is not really a very pleasing philosophical prospect, but it's also probably not really possible. Hmm. I don't think. Hmm. Um, when I when I was a kid, I, I spent a lot of time out on a lake in northern Michigan fishing, and it was very quiet until every once in a while, 52. a B fifty two. You know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. A B fifty two flying low, I guess, practicing flying under the radar, mm-hmm. would come overhead at about a couple hundred feet. Is that right? About five hundred, probably five hundred yeah. feet. Maybe it may have been lower than these safety factors get increased over time. But right. They may have been lower. Really low, monstrous aircraft, bigger yep. than your B-2. Yeah. Um, camouflage paint on it. So yeah. a scary-looking thing. would come low over my little boat, cast its shadow over me, roar overhead, and then disappear. Um, it was the machine that made the impression on me. I never yeah. thought about the human beings inside. So it's really interesting for me to sit down with, with one of those Yeah. Human beings who's in well, these. and in the B fifty two there were more. I think there yeah, were there prob- were probably yeah. at the time there were six crew members, uh, yeah. all working in concert to do many many things uh, to make that low level flight uh, effective potentially for what it was going to be tasked to do. Which so, was, uh, which probably at the time was Cold War type things. Uh, you know, the Cold War was a very clear uh, set of adversaries that uh, we. F- I think somewhat improperly, but over time kind of understood what was at stake and, and, and how it would, may or may not play out. Uh, and so there were training to do very specific things. So, And one of them was to fly low into Soviet airspace and drop yeah. nuclear bombs at some point in what would have been World War III mm-hmm. back then. So it's it's interesting for me to get to talk to a person who's had his hands on the controls. Um, as that human being, what did you feel... Or, or what went through your head when you said yes, which is essentially what you did when when the bombs were dropped over Baghdad? Well, you, I guess, uh, oddly enough, you hope they do exactly what it is you're, you're tasking them to do, which is hit uh, hit where you want them to hit, uh, take out the targets you want want them to hit, which in the case of the B-2 um, are, are, at the time, were kind of fixed targets, known locations of bunkers, command and control facilities, uh, there wasn't a lot of moral doubt as to where they played in the war. Um, what it, what those kind of targets do is effectively uh, decrease Saddam Hussein's command and control structure to control his forces to 
uh, implement his will, whether it was through communication or command and control of his forces. Mm. So, but you um, you've thought a lot about it because I know you have because three years later you came out with a long, really thoughtful essay that was structured around that particular mission. Yep. Uh, and told the story from beginning to end of this 39-hour trip and some of the things that went through your head. I wondered if you would uh, read a little passage for me. Sure. Just at the, the very beginning of this essay. It may set the tone. Okay. Uh, Missouri, 19 March 2003. The clock is punched for war in Mesopotamia. Six hours until midnight, the day before the sudden flourish of air combat, I'm suited, armed, and briefed for a 20,000-mile flight. The middle 208 seconds of the journey will be over Baghdad. Tomorrow's strikes will compose the first salvos of shock and awe. Our warbirds are carbon fiber and titanium stealth bombers. They idle, topped with fuel, pre-flight crews tending aircraft systems on the rain-damp tarmac of Whiteman Air Force Base. In the course of the next two days, I will stiffen my backbone against exhaustion and battle with Air Force-issued amphetamines, a half case of canned espresso drinks, and 40,000 pounds of steel and high explosive, and books. Yeah, so books. Um, tell me some of the books you took along. A lot of people would imagine that you just take the basic necessities, some food, toothbrush maybe, yeah. uh, you know, some, some deodorant. <laughs> yeah. Well, even, even when I flew fighters, I took what I would consider probably not a necessity, but in case I ever had to land somewhere, I, in my pocket of my G-suit, I kept, uh, you know, a... Uh, one of the short Shakespeare plays or, uh, or something like that, just in case I ended up somewhere where I didn't have anything else to do but read. But uh, um, I took books by Tim O'Brien, uh, Tobias Wolfe, uh, James Salter, various translations of the Iliad, Beowulf, Seamus Heaney, uh, and, and Jim Harrison, uh, kind of a, a eclectic mix of things I've read and really enjoyed uh, over the course of my education and and afterwards, and uh, just kind of a strange mix of, of books that meant a lot to me. Hmm. Well, they included the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Don Quixote, the Norton Book of Classical Literature. I, I've got a little list here, so I'm yeah. hoping you're along here. <laughs> books by Edward Abbey, um, Cormac McCarthy, uh, poems by Jim Harrison, Ted Couser, Billy Collins. A little library, really. Yeah, it was a little library, yeah. And, and again, all of them I'd previously read because uh, just to set the tone of, of what it would mean to read a book in flight, is it's not really something you can do end-to-end. -end. It's something you can pick up and open and, and have flashbacks to moments when you read it before or, or look at notes you've taken in the book and see what you highlighted uh, 10 years earlier. Or uh, it, it was just kind of a way to pass the time uh, mm -hmm in a way that I hoped would be meaningful and would keep me awake. You had 39 hours, though, some of which you had to spend doing your duties, I imagine. Yes. Well, all of them, really. And you, you had to. thousands of pages of books, yeah. uh, you know, books that take, in some cases, a long time to read just one, one by one. Yeah. These books must have meant a lot to you to take on this, on this uh, voyage. They did. Uh, and again, I always plan every flight uh, assuming that you have options to land other than where you took off from. And so uh, knowing you can't just put an, a B2, if you run out of gas or you, you're, it looks like you miss a tanker and you're going to run out of gas somewhere, you can't just decide to put it in the Atlantic. You need to put it somewhere. And so the idea being that if I had to land it somewhere I wasn't planning on, I could also, you know, sit under it and read a book for two days while I'm waiting for somebody to show up and get me home. Mm. So. But you, you never had to land. Uh, everything went as planned, but you did find time to crack the books. I did, yeah. Um, it, it was a way to distract myself uh, from just having to sit and stare at, at the ocean or, mm. or uh, flight instruments that aren't really changing much uh, because once you set the power and set the speed, uh, it's a fairly droning, monotonous circumstance as long as you know you have the gas you need, the oil pressure's good, uh, all the systems are operating properly. It's a, uh, it's like cruise control in your car, but you can kind of, you're not going to hit anything. Hmm. So, but these are more than just time killers. I mean, I'm going to read from that essay myself here: um, clarity, courage, ambiguity, context. 
These perceptions gain meaning and momentum through the processes of literature. The one thing I believe that burns through the veneer of civilization to gift us glimpses into the eternal truths of human nature, the things we know but cannot name, the books I pack in my flight gear, poetry, short stories, the world's classics, collected essays, glossy hunting journals with ads for $40,000 shotguns, and poetry, poetry first and last. Yeah. So it means more to you than just like a way to pass the time. It, it does, yeah, it does. And and each one of those, uh, you know, when I list off the names of those people or those books, um, it, they essentially take me somewhere else. And so it's almost like being able to play a film reel in my mind. You know, I pick up uh, In Pharaoh's Army and I, I immediately think of myself in Newcastle, Australia in the summer of 1995. Uh, and I I bought it in hard book there, so I have an Australian version of it. Uh I pick up, uh, I don't know, Ted Couser, who's from Nebraska. I think of, you know, the imagery he rolls out is very similar to what I grew up looking at. So mm. uh, it's a way, it's a, it's a, it's a meaningful, uh, more deep way to pass the time than I guess probably just listing it indicates. I got the sense in this essay that, you know, you were struggling with some things, not maybe not tormented by them. But you were definitely grappling with things about what you were doing. Yeah. And these books, you know, these books were one way that you found of, of, of confronting yes. who you were and what you were up to. You, you wrote, I read to rage against the constriction of my profession, the barbarity of all over-specialized professions. Yes. Do you remember writing that? Oh yeah. I, and it's something I, I believe and I, and I continue to believe that, uh, People who become overly specialized tend to see the world a certain way, and uh, that's kind of what I guess literature does as well, which in my case allows me to confront uh, a single viewpoint. It allows me to see something whole, potentially, or, or at least confront the ways that I'm assuming uh, the world works uh, from a single perspective. Hmm. So, Well, some of the, the issues that come up in this essay are the same ones that I thought about when I thought about you know what you what you do as a bomber pilot a guy high in the sky out of harm's way unless something goes seriously wrong the stealth bomber is going to be pretty much invisible to the iraqis on the ground in this case yeah. uh you're going to be able to uh carry out this mission of dropping these bombs and go away unscathed uh none the worse for wear except for a, a you know loss of some sleep yeah yeah and yet uh the the literature you know, is about, in some cases, about war and its costs and about killing and about the necessity of war or the non-necessity of war. The, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot of what you picked here to read about. It is, yeah. And, and you know, the decision to go to war in, in a society, a, an open Western society like this, uh, to me, uh, does most of the time quite a bit of due diligence. I mean, there, uh, the president obviously is a commander in chief and makes a decision, but it's a political decision he makes. Uh, he gets people on board. He argues his case. People argue against his case. It's a very public, in, in the case of this, you know, this isn't always the case, but in the case mm. of Iraq, mm. it's a public thing. Uh, and, and there are lawyers involved, just war theorists, scholars get involved. You know, I'm sure I wasn't at Stanford at the time, but I'm sure there were massive discussions between academics here. And so, uh, that conversation, uh, the result of the conversation is the decision, and then you find yourself over a foreign capital. But knowing that that conversation has taken place, uh, you're acting on the authority of of the American people in that case. It's mm. not; it is a personal decision, but you're not alone in in that decision. Mm. Now, now I know we're, we've you know we've agreed at the outset of this interview not to talk policy. Your job prevents you from doing that, but I want to say it for the record that. Despite what in in the perfect case would be a well worked out process where the entire nation, well informed, uh, decides to go to war and then charges people in the military like yourself right. to go carry it out, the perfect case isn't always what happens. And in, yeah, in the case of the Iraq War, as we now know, our information was incomplete at best. Exactly, and I would say that's always going to be the case. Probably, uh, again, looking historically, um, you know, wherever you fall on the on the assessment of how and why we went to war there, uh, 
Uh, we do know historically that there were mass graves of 400,000 Iraqi citizens, Shia, Sunni, whoever, uh, Kurd. Uh, and we also know that he used chemical weapons against the Iranians in the 80s when the war with them and, and uh, destroyed a village in the northern part of, of Iraq of 10,000 people with chemical weapons. So um, in my mind, that was not really an open question. Mm. How it played out after the war uh, will be historically interesting, I think. Mm. And, and it's a way to... Uh, have a you know a discussion as a citizen of how we make decisions to go to war based on the information we have at hand. It it, it must be a very tricky situation though for a person, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you seem like a person who who is by no means a war robot, right? Well, I hope not. <laughs> but but to be to to have basically signed a contract where you will carry out the responsibilities that come down through this imperfect system of ours. It mm -hmm. involves politics, involves some uh, noble aims and some not-so-noble aims, all of which is filtered down into it's time for you to take off on a bombing run or something like yes. that, you yeah. know? So so you must know a lot of people in the military who deal with it in different ways. That That is absolutely the case. Uh, you know, again, I... I, I how people deal with it is, is is personal, and how they handle uh, the things they're they're told to do. Again, when they're trained to do things well, uh, we we try not to put people in potentially unethical situations or immoral situations. Um, and and what's great about our society is that when those things are done, people are held to account for them. Whether uh, it's atrocities, whether it's uh, uh, bad decisions. Uh, you know, obviously, you, you lament the fact that people die in war, but the the beauty, I think, of our society and and, and the inquiry of, of Western civilization really is that we can we can we can deal with these things after the fact and hopefully learn from them as well. Do you think we're learning? Do you think we Americans are, are learning um, over the years? Are we getting better at, at making choices that are this momentous and involve? Uh, so much destruction and so many lost lives. That's that's a a battle for every generation. Really, it's not it's not something that can has a start point and an end point. Um, there's always going to be imperfect information. There are always going to be uh, people we want to get along with who we don't get along with for whatever reasons, fear, honor, interests, conflicting interest. Um, and so that that is kind of a constant struggle. It's not a uh, we've crossed the finish line. We're good to go now. So. Um, and that's what I think. That's why I think history and literature is so instructive, is because it it gets us to at least wrap our minds about around confronting these things as they're happening, rather than forcing us to look backwards in time and say, "Well, we could have done this better." Well, we could have confronted things uh, at every turn uh, head on, which is oftentimes not the case of bureaucracies. So, you're, you're reminding me of another uh, quote from. Your uh, essay, and by the way, we haven't named it. It's called "Things to Pack When You're Bound for Baghdad," and it's collected in a uh, a book by uh, edited by Donald Anderson called uh, "When War Becomes Personal." You write, "I've seen literature, faith, family, and friends equip those peripheral to a sudden loss as harrowing as this, with the armaments necessary to defend their souls. Choice lies mainly in the first two. In other words." Uh, Family and friends, you don't choose that. They're right, chosen right. for you. Yeah. yeah, Choice lies mainly in the first two. Faith and art for trials like death and war and what comes after. Yeah. And you've chosen literature. Yeah. Well, what did it do for you um, in helping you figure out how to uh, come to terms with, with your um, service during the Iraq War? Well, I think... Uh it gives you a, a historical foundation. Um, it gives you a cultural foundation. Uh, um, it gives you kind of a past to hopefully build upon as far as what's the history of how, how do you fight honorably? How do you fight courageously? How do you, uh, if you're confronted by an immoral or unethical situation, how do you, you know, remain courageous and, and confront those as well? And so for me, uh, Again, it's one of the quotes in the front of the essay, but one of my favorite quotes when it comes to literature is literature's history with the truth left in. It it has a way of uh, not being bound, overly bound by the specifics of what's taken place. It's mm. someone's perspective, uh, whether it's, again, whether it's cultural, whether it's uh, personal, um, social, 
Marshall, however you want to look at it, but it's a way of uh, gaining experience and, and living something without having lived it. Uh, you will hopefully have confronted these larger issues in your mind before you're confronted with them uh, in body. Mm. Well, one way of like saying what I'm doing is okay is to say, I know that my country's right in every case. Another way might be to say, hey, the world's screwed. We're going we're gonna to kill each other one way or another. So right. be it. Kind of a fatalistic yeah. look at it. Yeah. I'm reminded a little bit of um, the fact that uh, in some cases, the ground crews that uh, prepare your bomber for action get to write something on, on the bombs themselves. Yeah, that that is kind of a historical thing that's always been done. Um, as uh, far back as I can see, you know, you see old pictures of World War II bombers and they had nose art. People uh, kind That's of right. customized their their uh, implements of war. Yeah, like shark teeth or something. Shark like teeth that. or, you know, the shield of Achilles. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it was you know, they these things are kind of uh, the details that, that I don't want to say personalize uh, what's going on, but it, but it does, uh, it's a way of kind of providing an image for what's taking place. And um, what were some of the things written on the bombs that were loaded onto that B-2 that you flew over Baghdad? Oh, specifically, I don't did, remember. Did, did you know? Did you actually see the bomb? Oh, yeah. I, I went. I mean, before you go drop weapons, one of the things you do is you make sure they're hooked up properly. Uh, and you see, you know, chalk, chalk, things written in chalk on, huh. on the surface of them. And so... You list a few um, things, and I'm not sure if these were on these actual same bombs or just things you've seen over the years. It's a little bit of a combination, frankly. Okay. I mean, there there were things you see over time that kind of coalesce into that moment. So a lot of um, jokey lines um, by these crew members. For all you do, this bombs for you. Or when it absolutely positively has to be destroyed overnight, USAF, U.S. Air Force. Yeah. Um, all you need is love. Love is all you need. A lot of gallows humor there. There's a lot of gallows humor. There's a lot of gallows humor in the military. Uh, at every turn, every regardless of service, uh, uh, specialty, however you want to look at it, their uh, gallows humor is a, is a military trademark. Hey, do you want to tell us what the emblem is of your bomb squadron, the one you commanded, the 13th bomb uh, squadron? Well, it was uh, when I when I left last summer. Uh, it's a patch that goes back to 1917, uh, flying spads over France, but it's the 13th bomb squadron, and uh, the the mascot on the patch is a Grim Reaper. Uh, with a scythe, uh, it's got blood on it, and it's he's a skeleton running, running across a blue field, and so that that was the patch uh, all the way back to World War One when they flew spads. Yeah, and it's kind of I looked at it; it's kind of cheery uh, until you look closely at that dripping, bloody scythe. Yeah. What do you think of that? What do you think of that kind of? Oh, I think uh, you can obviously take it a couple different ways, and and you can take it both ways. Um, there's gallows humor, and there's, uh, I think, a reminder of what it is you're called to do uh, mm-hmm. in, in those circumstances. And so uh, uh, making yourself numb to that is certainly not, it, it's not an option you would want anyone to choose, hmm. but making yourself uh, unable to act in the face of that also is not something you need a military uh, doing. So I guess kind of embracing it is a way that, that's why gallows humor is so prevalent in the military. Um, yeah, when I saw it, I thought, man, that is really ghoulish. And then I thought, well, it's honest. Bombers aren't there to drop care packages. Right. You do raise the uh, the issue of killing and death um, in your essay about that sortie over Baghdad. You write, how many dead? In the aftermath of the air war, some may now be mine. Bodies disintegrated in holes below once lavish palaces terrorist camps, command centers, and barracks. How to think on those things? Yeah, that's a question. It's, and it's not answered necessarily. No, and, it isn't. And it, and it can't be uh, in the case of air warfare is kind of unique uh, in history. And, and there's a, you get a feel for that hopefully in the essay. Uh, it's almost godlike. You are, there's the ranges at which you're talking about employing the speeds, the distances, uh, the time involved are... Uh, you know they they hearken to like the Greek gods of the the bow and the uh, the arrows of Apollo and so uh, 
you know, those questions are not really answerable, but that's part of what's taking place. And so I don't know my piece in it. Um, again, being in the B2 is in some ways, well, in many ways, it's a luxury uh, when it comes to confronting those issues because I'm not a 19-year-old kid on the streets of Baghdad, you know, with a rifle who's um, handing out candy to kids one minute and then worried about an IED the next. And so uh, what I have to confront is very different than what that 19-year-old kid has to confront. And the moral choices, uh, the moral facts after events take place are different. And so, again, that's one of the things I hope to kind of convey. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a question. It's not an answer. Yeah. And so, Well, you write about um, being back uh, home in Missouri at the time uh, where you were stationed on Whiteman uh, Air Force Base, going to the market in your uniform and people coming up and thanking you mm-hmm. uh, for your service uh, and you feeling kind of guilty? Well, it's not that's, – that's a very tricky thing to write about. Why I wrote that and why I put that in is because I don't want the credit for something uh, I didn't endanger myself for. And so when you're in a B-2 – you know, again, you're not back on the streets of Baghdad. And so to me, those thanks uh, didn't seem, uh, you know, you can't, you can't uh, disagree with someone for thanking you because that's, it's a very honest thing for them to do that. Mm. But at the same time, uh, you know, the, the sacrifices I feel like I made are, are minuscule in comparison to somebody who's having to... Uh, deal with what they had to deal with after the air war was over. Uh, yeah. And when I said guilty, I meant, uh, yeah, I was referring exactly to that, that maybe uh, you felt a little bad because you thought they were thanking you for bloody sacrifice on the ground. Right. When in fact you were way up in the sky in, right. in relative comfort, I guess. Yeah. And, and I guess that's, that's kind of, uh, I don't want credit for something that I haven't borne, mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense, mm. you know, I feel like the Army has, uh, you know, the, the troops on the ground, and I shouldn't just say the Army, uh, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and the Navy have all lost people on the ground in Iraq. But as as far as air warfare goes, it going, almost goes back to what I just said about it being kind of godlike, is uh, our consequences, while it depends on who you're fighting and the circumstances are great, uh, we're, we are uh, acting kind of above the action in mm. some ways. It's interesting because, yeah, I, you know, it's funny, the, the idea of a god um, raining, you know, destruction from the sky occurred to me, too. And then there's this this odd irony, though. One of the things you have to do is equip yourself with things like a pistol while you're mm-hmm. flying this. A pistol. A guy in the most sophisticated aircraft ever built with incredible destructive power has to carry a handgun mm-hmm. because, you know, if things go wrong, you could be spit out of this plane, end up on the ground, go from god to lowly yeah. mortal very quickly very quickly and <laughs> yeah. of course the you know we know the history of being a combat pilot is full of guys who end up in captivity yeah and pilots seem to come in for some special treatment yeah they do they get uh you know they uh quite often not quite often but uh, a lot of the stories you read especially from vietnam where we have such a kind of a i don't want to say a rich history but we have people who talked about it in ways maybe they hadn't before uh stockdale mccain mm-hmm. you know, people who endured it for a long time um fairly often the problem the the challenge with that is that the people you just bombed are the ones you're landing amongst and so you know john mccain landed basically in the village that he just bombed and so you you don't very you don't fare well Uh, most of the pilots that are captured under those circumstances most of the injuries really brutal injuries for injuries they sustain are when they're first captured and so, um, you know, you, you can choose to protect yourself in certain ways. A lot of, a lot of those guys know that if they uh, are going down in a populated area, they get rid of the pistol because it's going to be used against them potentially, and they're not going to be able to stop a crowd of people uh, in that way anyway. Have you, have you thought about the perspective of those people on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, what do you think? Well, my... What I think is that how we go about the conduct of air war now um, should, and you know, it's a it's a long, complicated process. It's not just equipment; it's rules of engagement, it's uh, target selection, it's how do we identify targets and ensure 
um, that you equip and you prepare yourself and the people around you uh, to deal with uh, a, an array of a spectrum of situations where hopefully you won't put them in the in, at the last second decision of having to choose between taking a target out and what's the value of the target versus what's around it. And so, and, and again, that's one of the luxuries I had in the B2 of hitting very specific regime targets, we call them, um, high value targets. You know, I, I wasn't, uh, trying to take out a surface terror missile site on top of a hospital. Mm -hmm. I was taking out a command and control bunker. And so I thought about these things I, over time and it was more prevalent. I thought about them in the F-16, but the, the type of F-16 I flew, that wasn't as much of a decision either because we weren't doing close air support. Mm -hmm. We weren't, uh, how we trained and what we were training towards was not that specific. And so, uh, from their perspective, obviously, you know, if you're going to war, you want to, you want to prosecute it in a way that, uh, is effective and efficient because the decision has been made. You don't, you want like a good example, I guess, would be something like in world war two, how many t bombers we had to send against targets and why we, why the decision was made to firebomb by the Brits and the Americans. Um, and the bottom civilian population, yeah, civilian yeah. populations, yeah. which, uh, again, I think that's oversimplifying what took place historically, because when you look at somewhere like Dresden, <coughs> excuse me, it was a switching yard where a lot of the su supply routes for the Eastern front were being driven through. And there were military factories and, and, and things within. When you go to an industrial-scale war, uh, it, it be, again, it becomes trickier to identify what's a civilian, what's a military target. And so uh, to, to go after those targets and get the effect you want, you had to send hundreds and hundreds of bombers to, who didn't have the accuracy required to actually take out that target. Now, with guided weapons, that cost has been decreased because you can hit what you want, and now we're worried about well, what's around it for that specific moment? And so that's why you see things like the Predator uh, the Predator film and things like that. And they watch, they, they develop, I'm not an expert on this at all, but they develop what's called a, a pattern of life of a target. And uh, they look at what's around it. They look at what's coming in, what's going out. Um, and to make that decision and weigh that cost of, well, we know we have a very high-value target here, whether it's uh, assets or an individual for the command and control of that area, um, they make the decision as to how do we do this and what's, yeah. what, what's the cost of it. So, I guess from what you're saying about the kind of bombs you used and the kind of targets you had, maybe you've been fortunate never to have to worry too much about whether the target was misidentified, you know, it, just to name a few cases of of mistakes where, you know, they thought mm -hmm. the Al-Qaeda leader was someplace and it turned out to be a family, you know, right. that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. I haven't had to deal that deal with that. But as a commander, um, I, you know, I have, I'm responsible for my squadron and I yeah. train people uh, as well and I'm responsible for their training. And so uh, that's, those are discussions we have. How do you handle this? If you get a pop-up target, how do you uh, employ the rules of engagement, not on the fly, but how do you train so that you know when to withhold or you to the best of your ability with imperfect information? How do you know to make that final decision? Uh, what's, what's the value or, or do you get more, seek more information at that point? And so, uh, in a sense, anybody in the military is going to work towards that objective. It's just that some have more complicated, uh, rules of engagement and decision-making processes mm -hmm. that they have to employ real time. Now, you used the word um, prosecute a moment ago, prosecute a war, standard usage. Yeah. But I wasn't aware of another usage that you uh, you mentioned in your essay, which is to prosecute a target. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. When you drop a bomb on it, you're prosecuting it? Yeah. And essentially, uh, again, it's it's a slang kind of term. It's more you know slang or jargon. But essentially, I think you know the historical kind of back backdrop on that would be it's judge, jury, and executioner because – uh, when we do target development, you know, lawyers, we, we deploy with lawyers. We uh, uh, deploy with lawyers. Yeah, there, there are lawyers in operations centers, uh, JAGs, that look at just war. They look at, uh, you know, the cost of a target, what's the collateral damage, uh, and how, how the targets are developed uh, with intel, 
Um, do we know what this is really? Is this a cultural target? We're not yeah. going to, we don't hit cultural targets. We don't bomb museums and mosques and things like that. So far, no lawyers in planes though. No, no, but, but they're, imp- they are, uh, integral in developing things mm-hmm. like rules of engagement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, because obviously the objective is to actually win. It's, mm-hmm. it's not to destroy the objective is to win. And, and, uh, there are a lot of aspects to that that are very complicated. Does the does the writer and lover of literature that you are uh, fight sometimes with the really sterile language of operations, of bureaucracy, of systems? Yes. Words like prosecute the target. Uh, yeah, and and it's you know uh, that's one of the things when you have a highly trained force uh, that's going to be flying a B two or a fighter. Uh, uh, they have bureaucratic tendencies because they have performance or they have uh, ways of viewing the world training that are kind of uh, encouraged. And so if, if you let you yourself subscribe completely to that, then you're not questioning what it is you're doing exactly at that, at that time. And so uh, how you look at language, I think is, is key to getting better. And that's one way I look at it is uh, if you are, you know, to use the example, if everybody in the room is thinking the same thing, then nobody's thinking. Mm. And that's one of the things you have to watch out for with jargon and mm. with uh, bureaucratic organization. Yeah. You know, you, you've been a, an advocate for literature as a way of helping to to deepen people's um, experience and, uh, and, and decision-making uh, in the military. And in fact, you wrote kind of an advocacy piece on, on behalf mm. of literature. What was the the, the uh, Air Force journal you wrote it for? Oh, it was a it was a base newspaper. They have what are called commanders' commentaries, and uh, essentially, uh, what I hoped to get across was that. Uh, well, I'd have to. Which one do you have? <laughs> well, here I'll, I'll, here, I'll remind you. Um, it ends this way. Um, you're talking about ways in which people can fight, quote, for the habits of mind and judgment that immunize us to the crush of information or its endless pursuit in the form of technology. Um, and you say, put down the video game controller, turn off the cell phone, read, reflect, find useful, humane principles, and carry that wisdom into the fog. Yeah. Yeah, I uh And I'm just wondering how that goes over in um Well well I think it goes over very well. I get comments uh from peers and people who work for me in my squadron and uh uh the uh my MAGCOM, which is uh the command that's in charge of the base, essentially put that on their website. And so uh there's a there's a uh constant struggle. I think Officers in the military are aware of the bureaucracy, um, and, and they, that's why we need leaders, not robots, and that's not why you're not going to see, you know, uh, I think purely mechanized war because uh, you can do things like that, but you need people to lead the systems even. You need people to lead other people. And so uh, ways to challenge that, that give the chance or the the possibility of of better outcomes I think are welcomed at all stages uh, and that's I guess what I was trying to get across, which is you know in the Air Force we have a tendency uh, we're a very technological service uh, and technology does amazing things and I may get cursed for saying this in Silicon Valley, but it is not a panacea and it's certainly not uh, self justifying it's it's something that has to be uh, I, I really think we don't know how to think about technology as a culture in some ways. And so uh, taking the time to reflect and, and look at what this really cool tool, and that's what technology is, is, is a tool, uh, what this cool tool allows you to do and, and how you go about it and the whys you go about it versus just the what. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, well, in your essay, you do talk a lot about a little discomfort with being essentially a piece of a large technological apparatus uh, in this B-2 bomber and how much it cuts you off from what's really happening outside. And the essay has a really interesting little section where you talk about something that I think for you is a bit of an antidote, Yeah, something you call the ritual. Oh, yeah, going out and running. And uh, there's a state park just outside the base. Uh, I'm, I'm a very, I don't know, solitary kind of private person. And so... Uh, I like to get out and away 
uh, and go for a run and, and be amidst trees and birds. And, uh, it sounds very cliche, but, uh, kind of, uh, taking the time to reflect, uh, by being away, uh, is a way to, um, I don't know, re-engage in more, more effective ways later. But you don't just run. I mean, uh, if I got it right, you stripped down to nothing but like a pair of shorts, right? Well, I, yeah, I didn't wear shoes and didn't wear shoes. Yeah. Run barefoot. Yeah. And yeah, rain, sleet or snow. I generally tried to, yeah, it's pretty extreme. It's not just a little jog. Right. Yeah. I it, mean, coating yourself with bud to ward off mosquitoes. Yeah. Uh, running, you know, on foot trails, barefoot. Yeah. And yeah. also bow hunting with bows that you make by your, by hand. Yep. I uh, mean, going back to nature, seriously. Yeah. The exact opposite in some ways of flying a B-2 bomber. Yeah. Which, I, and again, that gets back in my mind to doing something in an opposite manner than, than you're kind of forced to habituate yourself to. Uh, you can be better at not being overly habituated, uh, which is what I don't want to be as a officer and a citizen, which is, you know, I want, I want to, uh, be able to do my job better. And, and by rotely doing it, by showing up every day and running a checklist is not, uh, how I see myself executing my job in the highest capacity. So, uh, I guess that's kind of what that does for me. So, Hmm. Hmm. And now I'm having torn ligaments in my ankles and I can't do it as often. (laughs) So, um, do you think of yourself, do you use the term warrior to describe yourself? Um, well, I think that's, that is a more broad term. I would apply that term more broadly than maybe, uh, society would, uh, I think you can be a warrior in in many ways, and, and they're cumulative in their effect. Uh, I think someone who writes a great book uh, is a warrior when it comes to how they went about that process, because it's not easy. Uh, I would I would say yes. I w- what embodies for me the the greatest virtues of of humanity can be embodied in a warrior, whether it's you know courage, um, temperance. Temperance can be a virtue of a warrior. Uh, judgment, wisdom, uh, all of those things have a place in in how somebody is or becomes a warrior. And it's it's not something again. That's not something that's a destination. It's more of a question in how you approach things and uh, uh, what you're asked to do by the society you serve potentially. So. Hmm. Hmm. What sort of myths or ideals? Um, motivate you or, or or maybe even mislead you at this point in your life you're pretty mature you have done a lot of things you have a family um you've obviously done things that very few people have ever done which is fly bombers over baghdad and things like that what what part of you do you think is still motivated by things that might be mm. imaginary you know um i don't know that's a good question I, uh, I I try and constantly ground myself, and so uh, I don't find myself being overly fanciful about things. Uh, I guess probably what I most ideological, if that sounds like kind of what uh, you're asking, uh, I imagine that these virtues can be widely applied and, and societal, and quite often I'm disappointed when I see that they're not. So you mean idealistic, really? Uh, idealistic, yeah. yeah. Uh, idealistic is a better way to say it. And so uh, because I want to serve in a capacity that is courageous and honorable and uh, with temperance and all and wisdom, uh, I, I, I seek these opportunities to learn about these things. And, and if I imagine that other people do as well, and sometimes I'm disappointed when maybe other people don't. Hmm. So... And and that's not to say within the military, it's not to say by politicians, it's not to say by any class of person, it's to say uh, we are, I don't know, fallen beings, I guess. And 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 I have my own failings, and but at the same time, I, I would hope that as a larger society, we can study our failings and learn from them and, and be better, rise above them under certain circumstances. So, so Jason, what do you see yourself doing at this stage? Um, you are on leave right now doing is is leave the right word i'm a it's a year long senior development education they call it okay so, so sabbatical kind of thing it's a sabbatical uh, in the sense that 
I'm not doing things on my own. I'm doing a fellowship in, in service for the Air Force, uh, you know, learning about larger picture in government and policy with regard to uh, nuclear nonproliferation and deterrence, things like that. So, um, And then you're going to go back to active service. Yes. Um, going to continue to be in a, a part of a bomb squadron, you think? No. Um, I, once you've been a squadron commander, that you generally don't go back and do that again. So it remains to be seen uh, what my what direction my service will go. Uh-huh. So. What, what do you? What would you like to see happen for you, um, in, in writing as well as in your Air Force career? Uh, I, I'd like to align the two in the sense that uh, how I can serve as an officer will be buttressed by writing and by the opportunities I've been given within the Air Force or the military. Uh, obviously. Is a uh, can buttress my writing as well. So, again, a, kind of a I don't want to say complete life, but a, a life that uh, runs in parallel and synthesizes to a greater whole. Mm-hmm. So, um, that essay we've been talking about a lot today um, that you actually wrote a good five years ago now, yeah, uh, and that refers to events that are about eight years ago. Um, things to pack when you're bound for Baghdad. Yes, uh, I wanted to have you uh, read just the very end of it. Okay, uh, but first, tell me this: does does the end still apply to your life? Uh, it does. Uh, it it applies more to again what I aspire to rather than how life plays out. Mm. I have less and less time to do the rituals of being out in the woods and uh, and writing, frankly. But uh, I do still aspire to those types of things: uh, an engaged life, uh, a life that's examined and. And in that way, uh, hopefully, enlarging. So. so why don't you read that last paragraph? Okay. From a kneel in the cold water, I roll cast to a rising trout from the shadows of an overhanging cottonwood, stealthy even now, a slow retrieve and nothing. I have begun a new bow, bamboo and cherry wood. I will hunt elk in the fall. I will make rosehip jam with my children. Jason, thanks a lot for talking to me today. Sure. Yeah, enjoyed it. That was Lieutenant Colonel Jason Armagost of the U.S. Air Force. And I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week when we'll be back with another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. In the meantime, you can visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.